0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 33. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. Today's episode of Hacker History is part two of a two-part mini-series on the greatest cyber attack ever conceived, Stuxnet. If you've not listened to part one, it is recommended that you do so before listening to this episode. A link to episode one can be found in the show notes on whatever platform you're listening from. Centrifuges are, in a sense, so simple. All they do is spin fast. The word centrifugal, moving away from the center, derives from the Latin centrum, meaning center, and fugere, to flee. Picture a blender on a high setting. A kind of emptiness forms in the center as the liquid contents spin along the edges of the machine, as if they want to escape use a high-power setting, and the whole machine starts to vibrate forcefully. The centrifuges that operate in scientific and industrial settings, as you might imagine, operate at orders of magnitude faster than your blender at even its highest setting, often well exceeding the speed of sound. At those speeds, with those forces at play, even the slightest thing going wrong could spell serious trouble. For example, Even a minor weight imbalance can cause abnormalities in the vibration pattern that build and build, until they cause severe damage to the machine and possibly the surrounding area. Consider uninterruptible power supplies, UPSs, which aid in regulating the flow of electricity to centrifuges. The UPS is crucial because extreme spinning requires a correct, consistent amount of power. In the early 2000s, Iran made a backroom deal with two businessmen in Turkey to purchase a UPS for 50 centrifuges at the Natanz Fuel Enrichment Plant. The businessmen arranged covertly to smuggle the UPSs into the country and, yada yada, four years later, Iran began its first attempts to enrich uranium. Everything went smoothly for the first 10 days. In a televised interview in 2007, Gholam Riza Aghazada, vice president for the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran, recalled what happened after the first week and a half. We had installed 50 centrifuges, he explained. One night I was informed that all 50 had exploded. The UPSs, he said, had not acted properly, adding, Later we found out that the UPS we had imported through Turkey had been manipulated. All 50 centrifuges were replaced. It was a hard-taught lesson. Iran's nuclear program had enemies, and they were gunning for their centrifuges. From then on, the Atomic Energy Organization would dutifully check all imported instruments before using them. That, you'd figure,
1: should have been enough. In late 2009, there were cameras positioned inside the facility so that the United Nations International Atomic Energy Agency could monitor the activities in the facility.
0: Kim Zetter, author of Countdown to Zero Day, whom you'd heard in our last episode. While the UN nuclear energy peacekeepers monitored Iran, they noticed something strange.
1: And they could see that in late 2009, the technicians were actually removing centrifuges from one of the rooms.
0: The IR 1 model centrifuges, tall, skinny, coiled machines, had a projected lifespan of around a decade. They're fragile things. About 10% need to be replaced annually, but Iran was replacing far more than that in only a span of just weeks. A thousand, according to some reports. According to one UN official, it was more like two thousand. Almost a quarter of all the centrifuges at the entire facility.
1: It wasn't obvious to the Iranian technicians or to the IA inspectors what was going on. And so the Iranians are trying to troubleshoot and they think that the problem is the centrifuges, so they bring in new centrifuges, but the problems continue to happen.
0: This wasn't your grandmother's computer worm.
1: This version of Stuxnet sped up the centrifuges so that they were spinning out of control in some cases. And causing the centrifuges to become worn out and to become uh, unstable
0: The damage and sheer panic wrought by the second Stuxnet was a testament to its remarkable destructive power but that great power would in the end, precipitate the fall of the entire operation In our last episode, we talked about the Stuxnet worm that was smuggled into Natanz by a Dutch spy in 2007. It subtly and unpredictably adjusted the valves controlling uranium hexafluoride gas transfer into centrifuges, sabotaging the process of uranium enrichment for a full two years. Though, as Kim explained in her book, quote, The operation against the valves was effective but slow. Stuxnet's creators were running out of time and needed a faster attack that would target the centrifuges more directly, and set Iran's program back more definitively. They also wanted to confuse the technicians with a different set of problems. In 2009, the United States, and by some accounts primarily Israel, decided on an entirely new version of their campaign. This one far more aggressive than the last. A second Stuxnet. This time more vicious, with fewer punches pulled. but it meant they had to cross the air gap one more time. The first time around, the CIA and Mossad recruited a real-life spy to sneak their malware into the facility. The same trick might not have worked a second time around.
1: It appears that the attackers, maybe they lost that inside access, or maybe they didn't want to expose. It was too dangerous to expose that contractor again. And so they had to deliver it in a different way.
0: Natanz, of course was thoroughly insulated from the wider world, through barriers both physical and digital.
1: But the engineers that program those systems use regular laptops, right? Laptops that are their business laptops that are connected to the internet. They do email, they do everything else on those laptops. And so Stuxnet was designed to target the laptops of contractors who were responsible for programming this industrial control system in Iran
0: a vendor supplying services to the facility, a supply chain attack.
1: They may have done that by getting physical access to a contractor's machine, maybe if they were traveling overseas, or maybe if they had someone that was uh, able to get inside one of those offices. And then once it was on that initial machine, the worm became active, and it started spreading inside the network of the contracting companies until eventually it got to someone who was actually responsible for programming the systems, the industrial control systems in Iran.
0: It was as if, instead of using a fiber optic connection to transfer their virus, Stuxnet was transmitted via an unwitting human, somebody who walked into and out of the facility without realizing the gravity of what they were carrying with them.
1: And once it got onto an engineer's laptop, that engineer then was programming systems that aren't connected to the internet, And the way that he or she would do that is write the coding on the laptop, load that code onto a USB stick, and then carry that USB stick down to the industrial control system network that was not connected to the internet.
0: Through a contractor, the attackers might be able to get their second Stuxnet into Natanz, then into the Siemens computers that controlled centrifuge operations. But they'd have to be precise.
1: Stuxnet was what we call a precision weapon, it would infect any system that had the Windows vulnerability, but it wouldn't actually launch its payload onto a system unless it found that that system had a really, really specific configuration.
0: Stuxnet wouldn't drop its malicious payload on just any computer. Only the Siemens S7-300 PLC, and only if it came connected with frequency-converted drives power supplies that control motor speed, that were developed by two specific vendors, Vacon in Finland, and Ferrora Paya, a vendor based in Tehran. And it went further. The drives had to be operating within a specific range of speeds, 807 Hz and 1210 Hz. Frequency converter drives rarely operate at such speeds, even in industrial settings, besides for the spinning of nuclear centrifuges.
1: So Stuxnet was looking for a plant or a facility that had the exact configuration of equipment that only existed in Iran.
0: Just imagine how much espionage must have gone into learning the exact specifications of the most minor components of the machines operating in this highly insulated and guarded facility.
1: It required really specialized knowledge of these systems that, very few people in the world were familiar with
0: it's a shame then at least from a certain perspective that this highly elegant plan ended up being botched kim describes in her book how between the first and second stuxnet campaigns quote the attack had been deliberately altered to become more aggressive over time beginning conservatively in 2009, then amping it up in 2010 by adding more spreading mechanisms, perhaps in a desperate bid to reach their target more quickly or to reach different machines than they had hit in their first attack. It increased the chances that Stuxnet would reach its target. It also increased the risk that it would spread to other machines. According to national security officials who spoke with the New York Times, Stuxnet effectively managed to find its way to the right PLCs in the Natanz facility through the infected contractor. However, When the engineer left Natanz and connected the computer to the internet, the American and Israeli-made bug failed to recognize that its environment had changed. It began replicating itself all around the world. Kim offers an even simpler explanation.
1: There's a contractor in Iran where it spread initially, but that contractor had offices in Indonesia and in the UK. And so it started spreading among all of the employees in those satellite offices as well. And those employees, as they visited the, you know, industrial control systems of of clients, of customers, they were spreading it to those customers as well.
0: Think about it for a moment, and it becomes so clear. Contractors have many clients. What would happen after the hackers infected a contractor and then, instead of the nuclear facility in Natanz, an employee of that company traveled to a manufacturing client in Bangkok or a pipeline in Alberta? It almost seems too obvious. Wouldn't the attackers have had to know this would happen? Maybe Kim's theory is wrong, or maybe there's a more sinister explanation that the attackers knew their second Stuxnet would spread around the world. Maybe they were okay with that. The Americans, who for most of the Stuxnet campaigns worked hand in hand with their Israeli partners, were, according to reports, as stunned as anyone. It's got to be the Israelis, Vice President Biden chided at one Oval Office briefing. They went too far. NSA interviewees for the documentary Zero Days put it in plain terms They fucked up the code. Instead of hiding, the code started shutting down computers. So naturally people noticed. Because they were in a hurry, they opened Pandora's box.
1: And so it started spreading around the world very quickly. I mean, within uh, probably days, it was already, already showing up in machines in Australia, in the U.S., and around the world.
2: It all came to a head one morning in 2010. This all happened on a sunny Saturday, which was a working day there. Sergei
0: Ulyssin, a Belarusian security analyst, received a text from a colleague in Iran, quoting now from his 2011 interview with Eugene Kaspersky.
2: Meanwhile, up in an overcast Belarus, I was at a friend's wedding reception, some 400 kilometers from Minsk. All the other guests were, of course, happily celebrating, dancing and drinking far too much while I was there hanging on the telephone, my mobile, all the time delivering urgent technical and psychological assistance to a dude near Tehran.
0: According to the dude in Tehran, several of his facility's computers were crashing.
2: Girls dressed to the nines kept passing by to and fro By this time, the festivities had taken themselves outside into the woods. Don't ask. Wondering what on earth I was doing talking strange things in some strange language in the woods at a wedding. And, of course, judging me as some kind of bizarre geek freak. When Ulyssen got a look at the
0: problem, it wasn't immediately obvious what had happened. He'd figured it probably had to do with a Windows misconfiguration or two installed applications not getting along with one another.
2: The penny dropped when I learned that the same anomalies had been found on many other computers in the customer's network, even on computers with freshly installed windows after a thorough anti-junk applications check. This was the moment I realized this was something more than just your average system malfunction. There was no doubt, a malware infection was involved. The consequences of Stuxnet
0: were not, in the end, suffered by the Iranian nuclear regime. Rather, they fell upon the rest of us, because Iran's nuclear program is stronger than ever. But even more importantly, because Stuxnet opened the door to an entirely new kind of problem for the world, one that you and I could well face someday in our future. Back when this campaign was conceived in the mid 2000s, cyber threats were almost cute. Low level credit card scammers, Worms that infected and spammed your computer with pornography ads.
1: We were pretty much focused on cyber criminals and some espionage coming from China. But for the most part, we had been dealing with, you know, in the aughts, the 2000s, we were dealing with a lot of theft of bank cards, uh, debit cards, credit cards, you know, siphoning from banking accounts. And that's primarily what we'd been dealing with for a good decade. And so Stuxnet really woke people up because it was an entirely different beast.
0: On December 23rd, 2015, Russian state-sponsored hackers compromised control systems at three power companies in Ukraine, taking the grid offline for one to six hours for around 230,000 Ukrainians. In December of 2017, the malware commonly known as Triton was discovered at a petrochemical plant in Saudi Arabia. Triton infected safety-instrumented systems, the machines responsible for making sure things don't explode and kill people, and was designed to disable them. Where it had only ever before been conceived, but not attempted, maybe pulled off in one minor incident here or there, Stuxnet was what finally demonstrated to the world that digital malware could cause physical damage. Damage to the machines underpinning the world's most significant global conflicts. Or those keeping people safe from harm? Damage to the bad guys' evil plans? Or damage to good, innocent civilians? We live in a post-Stuxnet world now, and there's no turning back. And that concludes part two of this two-part miniseries on Stuxnet. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. This episode was written by the talented Nathaniel Nelson narrated by me, Christopher Luft, and produced by the team at Lima Charlie. And I want to give a heartfelt thank you to Kim Zetter for sharing her expertise with us. It is an honor. If you have any feedback or ideas for future stories, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.